Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series by the World Justice Project. I'm Joel Martinez, the WJP's Director of Engagement, and today's host of a conversation with Robert Mugga, Research Director and Program Coordinator for Citizen Security at the Igarepe Institute, an independent think-and-do tank focused on evidence-based policy and action on complex security, justice, and development challenges in Latin America and Africa. Today we'll be discussing the state of the rule of law in Brazil and the impact of the recent election of Jair Bolsonaro, the right-wing president-elect who has divided Brazilian public opinion with his controversial comments and policy proposals. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to Rule of Law Talk for more vital conversations like this one. Populism is on the rise. From North America to Eastern Europe to East Asia and the Pacific, populist parties are gaining prominence and winning power in many cases posing significant challenges to democratic institutions and the rule of law in the process. Recently, Latin America has seen its own shift towards populism, with Brazil's election of Jair Bolsonaro highlighting this trend and raising important questions about the status and vulnerability of the rule of law in the country. Here to help us make sense of the situation and understand its implications for the rule of law more broadly is Robert Muga, Research Director and Program Coordinator for Citizen Security at the Igarepe Institute in Brazil. Robert Muga specializes in cities, security, migration, and new technologies. He co-founded the Igarepe Institute, a think and do tank based in Brazil devoted to working on data-driven safety and justice solutions in Latin America and Africa. He also co-founded the SecDev Group, focused on cybersecurity and digital risk in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. He is a frequent contributor to The Atlantic, BBC, CNN, Foreign Affairs, among others, and received his Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Oxford. Mr. Mugga, thank you for joining us today. I know these are complex times for Brazil, so we appreciate you taking some time to sit down with us here at WJP, and welcome to Rule of Law Talk. Thanks so much, Joel. Happy to be here. Well, I, I wonder if we can start with a little background for our listeners uh, this election came on the heels of several scandals, including the crimes uncovered by the Lava Jato investigation starting in 2014, the impeachment of sitting President uh, Dilma Rousseff in 2016, the, the imprisonment, uh, imprisonment of former President Lula for corruption. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how those scandals, about those scandals and how they played a role in, in shaping the election? Right. Well, Brazil's been under undergoing a fair bit of turbulence and volatility uh, for a while now. So this wasn't something that just arose out of nowhere. Uh, the short story really is is that there really you know is an unholy trinity uh, of factors that contributed to the uh, current uh, sort of cycle uh, electoral cycle. And the first is a sort of significant economic decline. Brazil's gone through. Uh, a serious recession uh, over the last six years. Uh, the second, I guess, big factor is these extraordinary political and corporate scandals uh, of which you spoke, one of which was Lava Jato. And the third is rising crime um, and sort of the growing anxieties in Brazil about it. Uh, Brazilians are extraordinarily disillusioned with their politicians and their political parties. They're angry over what they perceive to be gross economic mismanagement of the economy over uh, the previous worker party or PT government, and they're fearful of crime. And they're hyperactive online. And I'll come back to the social media point uh, shortly. But the long story is, is that basically this election comes after almost 13 years of the Workers' Party 
being in power. Um, and the Workers' Party in Brazil, which had been headed by Lula, who, as you said, was in jail, and previously Dilma, who was impeached, uh, was deeply loathed and resented by the elite in Brazil. Uh, but they basically tolerated the PT for the last 13, 14 years as a result of the fact that Brazil was going through a dramatic economic transformation. It was going through what we call a super commodity boom. Uh, and you had a, a fair amount of spending over the last 13 years. Uh, and there had been allegations of corruption going back to 2005, including corruption involving former President Lula. But these were quietly pushed aside as the economy went through an unprecedented period of growth. All this came to a screeching halt uh, starting in 2011, uh, when the boom started to wear off uh, in the wake of the 2008 crisis, um, but also changing appetites in, in China and elsewhere. Uh, and then in 2013, when Brazil had some of the largest protests in its history, when millions of people took to the streets to protest a range of grievances, you know, ranging from uh, what the people saw as grow, you know, overspending on the World Cup in 2014 and the Olympics in 2016 through to uh, concerns about rising prices and inflation. Uh, and so this fury, this anger with the PT deepened. In the 2014 elections, which Dilma won, uh, we saw the country start to polarize further still. Uh, we saw that culminate in Dilma being impeached in 2016. Uh, we saw Lula being jailed this year in 2018. Uh, and what you saw was essentially the desire in Brazil for an outsider, uh, somebody like a Bolsonaro type figure. Uh, the centrist parties, which have dominated Brazilian politics for 30 years, weren't able to you know, assemble a common front. Um, and Bolsonaro had a very clear message. Uh, he harnessed the NTP rage, I think, expertly. Uh, and he dismantled his opposition through a very low cost, but very media, social media savvy campaign. So I guess the point is that the, the, the warning signs of disillusionment were there um, and, and deepening. Um, you know, it's easy to forget, but the previous President Temer had a popularity rating of 3%, uh, the current President Temer, and he'll be leaving office when Bolsonaro assumes the presidency in, in, in January next year. Uh, and faith in democracy in Brazil had been really um, rocked. Uh, you know, less than 43% of the population thought that democracy was the best form of government last year. And more than 55% of Brazilians thought that a dictatorship uh, was worthwhile if it could solve corruption and crime. Uh, so these are deep problems, and I think Bolsonaro tapped a nerve. Um, and what we saw was the result with him winning 55% of the popular vote uh, last weekend. Sure. Wow. And so... It sounds like really it was a combination of these of these rule of law factors like crime and corruption, but also uh, some economic factors that really sort of pr played a role in, in him rising to prominence. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, it was really, the, like I said, it was a whole eternity of, of uh, an economic rut um, with the economy growing at a 1.2% compared to the global average of a 3.5% just last year, but really being in recession for the previous six uh, and and uh, this unbelievable corruption scandals, which affected the vast majority of politicians in Brazil. I mean, forty percent of the uh, legislators in Congress are implicated in this corruption scandal. Dozens have gone to jail. Um, CEOs and the largest companies have been put behind bars, which is extraordinary uh, in this country, which had seen so much impunity. And remember, $10 billion worth of funds uh, essentially stolen from the Petrobras, which is the national oil company. And then finally, crime. You know, Brazil has 64,000 homicides a year. Um, you know, there's a real sense of 80% of the Brazilian population feels they could be killed within the next 12 months. Uh, there's been a great exodus of, of Brazilians, middle class and upper class, uh, to the States and, and to Europe. Uh, and so there is a sense that something had to be done. 
Uh, and I think Bolsonaro offered uh, a very slick set of uh, answers. He appealed to people's sense of patriotism and uh, faith and family. Um, and, you know, he, he had a hardline message, which resonated with Brazilians at this time. Um, some may say it was a fascistic message, an authoritarian message, an ultra-right message. We'll get to this later. Uh, but it was certainly a message that, that signaled something new to Brazilians. And I think that's what people were really, you know, yearning for. Uh, sure. And and I think you're really touching on some of the sort of the the most confusing or paradoxical points of, of the campaign was that at one point or from one side, Bolsonaro really seemed to stand as the candidate against corruption and really sort of railed against this, the, you know, Brazil's sort of corrupt recent past and, and with promises to clean it up. And at the same time, some of his rhetoric really seemed to go uh, against, you know, some of the rule of law and the rule of law institutions. And I wonder, you know, sort of, you know, the rule of law is many things. For the World Justice Project, we separated into, you know, sort of eight separate factors, including constraints on government powers and absence of corruption, uh, open government, fundamental rights, order and security, regulatory enforcement, civil justice, and criminal justice. And I wonder for you, are some of these factors of the rule of law, do you see an opportunity for improvement sort of under this new regime and some to regress? I mean, will there be sort of a mixed impact of, uh, of this election? Well, I mean, we've, Bolsonaro has been around for a long time. He's a 27-year serving politician, um, having passed a grand total of two bills in the course of those 27 years. Uh, so not necessarily a particularly effective one. But he's been very clear uh, on his um, priorities, uh, ranging from the rolling back of democracy, the increasing of military power uh, in government, um, the restriction of human rights, the empowerment of extrajudicial, uh, you know, use of force by police. So the point is that, that you know, Bolsonaro has been fairly clear and he's always been considered a fringe politician. So people, you know, a small number of people were supported him, but he by and large was ignored by the mainstream. I think it's just to go back a little bit. Bolsonaro campaigned on a sort of a mandate of restoring family values, of promoting evangelical um, sort of sets of virtues uh, and being tough on security. And he played the populist card perfectly. Simple messages, um, you know, us versus them, uh, heavy stick, uncompromising, discrediting the media. Uh, and he had street cred. I mean, uh, you know, Bolsonaro, in the midst of these various corruption scandals, was actually seen to be relatively corruption-free. Um, he wasn't implicated directly in large amounts of the Mensalau scandal, in, in, in which involved basically uh, collusion, corruption between the parties, nor was he implicated in the Petrobras scandal. Um, though there are now questions emerging about declarations on his tax form and the stunning rise of his kids' wealth. Uh, but the fact is that, you know, even before Bolsonaro became a, a legitimate and serious candidate, uh, Brazil, Brazil's judiciary and federal police were already uh, heavily involved in anti-corruption activities, which precedes Bolsonaro. It was ironically Lula and Dilma who opened the door to these investigations of corruption, and far precedes Bolsonaro. Uh, and there have been attempts to slow things down, um, you know, but, but Bolsonaro in a way is riding a wave of uh, anti-corruption um, efforts that were started by the previous administrations. I think when it comes to Bolsonaro's tone on crime control and the rule of law, I don't think there's much to celebrate. There, there certainly 
uh, are, there's not much to be optimistic about. I mean, he has basically a number of key pillars to his strategy. The first and the, his priority is to loosen gun laws. Um, you know, and, and this means basically increasing the ability for people to carry guns on the street, not just have them in the home, because people already have uh, a privilege of having a gun in the home if they can get the license for it. It means um, expanding the number of guns that people can own, expanding the amount of ammunition people can access. He also wants to expand police powers, including uh, shoot-to-kill prerogatives. He wants to extend sentencing, uh, especially for uh, minors. He wants to reduce the penal age from 18 to 16. He wants to deploy the military and domestic operations. You know, so these are these are really clear stated priorities uh, that he set out. And this is in a country with 64,000 homicides a year, which 45,000 are gun-related. You know, one in 10 homicides in the world occurs in Brazil. Uh, it's also in a country where there are more than 10,000 police killings a year, which is 10 times the number in the United States. Uh, so, that's his kind of core of his, let's call it law and order campaign, which basically pulls a page out of the Mano Dura uh, sort of repressive policing handbook of El Salvador, or Honduras, or uh, Colombia in the 90s, or even Mexico since Calderon in 2006. Um, but what he's also said, and, and this is where things get very nervous, I think, for many people who are watching, is in addition to his tough on crime uh, approach, is that he, he endorsed, he's endorsing very strongly a crackdown on his, his political opponents, especially those on the left. He's advocating a crackdown on, on minorities. He's gone after the LGBTQ uh, community. He's, 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 he said that he wants to increase deforestation on indigenous lands. Uh, he's called for uh, a stripping of human rights. Um, you know, one of his sons recently called for ending and putting an end and abolishing the Supreme Court. Um, you know, sympathetic governors to his party and to him are talking about abolishing public security secretaries at the state level. So, you know, the challenge right now is it's not abundantly clear what else he has uh, on his to-do list. Um, but there's very little, I would say, that's positive when it comes to uh, enforcing the rule of law, being mindful of human rights, uh, and also ensuring civilian control of security institutions. If anything, he's calling for a, an expansion of military and police powers in, in democratic governance. And so this is all very ominous, I think, for Brazil. Very ominous. Are there safeguards that might help protect Brazil's rule of law, sort of in light of these uh, potential threats? Yeah, I mean, Brazil, it's, it's important to remember, Brazil's a relatively young democracy. I mean, I you know, the dictatorship lasted from 1964 to 1985. Uh, and so we're really talking about three decades of, of democracy. Um, and so I think it's, you know, this is the fourth largest democracy in the world. This is one of the largest countries, uh, you know, on the planet. Um, but, you know, we do need to remember that some of these institutions are still in evolution, still a bit frail. Uh, I guess to Brazil's advantage, it does have a strong judiciary, um, has a fairly powerful Supreme Court, has a strong system of prosecutors and judges, um, a relatively robust system of defenders at the state and, and sort of local level. Um, Brazil's federal police are also considered, you know, widely considered to be reasonably credible, uh, certainly more so than the military and civil police, uh, which predominate in, in the 26 states and federal capital. Um, and, you know, the military, uh, it's not 1964. I mean, the, the, there, there aren't signs right now the military is aspiring for more power, um, though certainly they've sent signals that if things were to get shaky, uh, they would have a say. Um, and that makes, I think, many people watching quite nervous. And we saw the power of the judiciary um, over the last decade, especially in the context of the Mensalal scandal, 
um, and the Lava Jato cancel, uh, scandal. And in, in fact, just today, in fact, Sergio Moro, who was the lead uh, sort of judge on the Lava Jato case, who was revered across Brazil, has just today agreed that he would be the new minister of a, a sort of, of a super justice ministry, um, which raises a whole bunch of questions for many, many people uh, about, you know, I, I think it's hard to interpret what that means right now. So the, I guess the good news is, is that in the, despite being a young democracy, Brazil has a reasonably strong judiciary. And Brazil also has a relatively lively civil society, um, you know, and a, a strong and robust, you know, human rights community, uh, large numbers of identity-based groups, especially black women and LGBTQ uh, communities. Um, the media is relatively strong, um, you know, over the last couple of years, although there's been some concerns about, you know, media being co-opted in the past, or at least supportive of the military uh, dictatorship. But you do have a lively um, media. Uh, and this really was bolstered in the wake of the dictatorship. Um, that, you know, the challenge, though, right now is that many of them are underfunded. Many are, are, are not so coordinated. And I think many are feeling a deep sense of anxiety and fear, uh, especially in the wake uh, and the awakening of, of Bolsonaro, his party, the PSL, and uh, the, the large number of sympathetic groups. So I often look to the U.S. when I ask, when, you know, when people ask me this question, is Brazil going to be able, are the institutions of Brazil going to be able to check uh, a determined populist uh, and authoritarian like Bolsonaro. Um, and I, I look at the U.S. and I, I think about how a political novice and opportunist like Trump was able to challenge the much vaunted U.S. You know, checks and balances. Um, I, I, you know, I would encourage people to think about what would happen when an experienced legislatively and determined authoritarian populist like Bolsonaro um, starts to press against rather weaker and underdeveloped institutions. So, you know, I think we're in for a very rocky ride. Sure, sure. Some, some causes of optimism and, and some to, for vigilance, I guess, then. Yeah. The, you know, I, w- I wanted to talk a little bit about solutions that your organization is working on, because it, it seems that, you know, part of the attraction to uh, Bolsonaro's platform was that he was putting out these, these solutions, whether or not they were, uh, you know, well thought out or will, whether or not they will be effective, the, the question is, what are some of the alternatives? You know, you've mentioned some of the, the, the ideas that he's put forward. What are some alternatives that, that your organization is putting forward to address some of these very real issues like citizen security? Well, I mean, just to recap, um, you know, our, our approach is very much about driving evidence-based, data-driven solutions to to public security and safety, uh, and avoiding those interventions that don't have a strong evidence base. Um, and, and just to recap, I mean, Bolsonaro, like I said, he's been, he's been very consistent. He wants to dismantle the disarmament statute and increase shall carry laws. Um, he wants to lower the penal age of criminality from 18 to 16. He wants to expand police am- amnesties and impunity uh, for these successive force, including authorizing shoot-to-kill policies for the police. He wants to deploy the armed forces of you know, specialized domestic operations. He wants to scale up counter-narcotics policing and enhance prohibition policies around drug policies. And he's got strong backing. I mean, on all those areas, I would say we at the Igarapé Institute have, I would say, more ba- perhaps a more balanced approach, saying, um, you know, not only do these strategies not work on their own objectives in terms of achieving the outcomes they expect, but they also generate negative externalities along the way. 
So what we what we adopt at the Gagabay Institute and what we support is something we call citizen security, um, which is an idea born in, in the Americas in the 1990s and, and was really led by enlightened mayors and civic groups who were pushing back against authoritarian-style governments in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and they include a, a sort of an array of strategies and practices, um, all of which are, again, based on data, um, informed by good practice, uh, shaped by a, an adherence to human rights. Um, and they range from strategies, you know, such as hotspot community policing uh, to uh, sort of more enlightened criminal justice reform to alternatives to prison and looking at rehabilitation for inmates uh, to heavy, heavy investments in, in prevention, you know, from primary and secondary to tertiary prevention, which includes everything from early childhood strategies, working with, you know, at-risk youth, um, as well as, you know, what we call CIPTET, um, sort of changes to the environment to improve the design of communities where people live to reduce concentrated disadvantage. Uh, and the good news is, is that in Brazil and across Latin America, there actually are reasonably, you know, positive examples of strategies that have improved public safety. It's, although we have a very difficult situation across the region in terms of crime and violence, 43 of the 50 most violent cities are in Latin America, and the homicide rate is three times the, the, the global average uh, regionally. Um, there are, I think, some really standout examples uh, in Colombia, in Mexico, in even parts of Central America, and in Brazil, where strategies in, involving, let's call it a combination of enlightened policies, have worked. Uh, you know, good examples of which might include, for example, Fico Vivo, which is a program in Minas Gerais, a big state in Brazil, which involved uh, problem-oriented policing, uh, digitized dashboards to track crime, um, programs involved police and communities working together to identify solutions before they escalate, um, strategies in prisons to try to reduce uh, in-prison and post-prison uh, recidivism through rehabilitation, uh, reconciliation programs to try to bring people together and get them out of the criminal justice system, um, you know, deal, uh, strategies to address low-level offenders and first-time offenders. So, so you know, this was a program in Minas, and similar types of programs have taken place in Sao Paulo, um, focusing on those kind of strategies, and, and as well as police reform, um, as well as preventive strategies to reduce alcohol consumption in high-risk areas uh, and to target investments in areas of concentrated disadvantage and inequality. We've also seen similar strategies in, in Recife up in the northeastern part of Brazil. And in, in Rio, we had the pacification program, the system of methods, which while controversial, actually helped contribute to violence reduction. So the point is that there are these examples, um, and many of them have been based on, I would say, solid principles of design implementation. The challenge has been that they aren't often sustained over long periods of time. So you might have a strategy that lasts four or eight years, but as incoming governors and mayors come in, they may want to have their new program. Um, and so what we know from, from the really good experiences of Colombia and other parts of the world is that unless you've got commitment over a 10-year, 15-year, 20-year period, it's very difficult to get those sustained declines. So at Igarape, we're working very closely with governors, uh, with also well, I mean, at the executive level, but with governors as well as with mayors, to help them pull together really good examples of what works, um, to try to find ways that technology can enhance those strategies. Uh, and we've got dozens of, of, of projects ranging from, you know, open source body cameras running off telephones to try to improve accountability over police, to predictive analytics using crime data to anticipate where crime is going to be, you know, 6, 12, 24 hours into the future, uh, to really low-cost digital dashboards for um, smaller and mid-sized municipalities to be able to monitor crime and centralize and digitize their data, uh, through to even dashboards that bring together good experience in Spanish and Portuguese and English from around the world and allow public policymakers to have access 
at their fingertips the latest data. So we're trying to promote strategies, often using technology, to expand awareness and evidence uh, of, of, the, of, of what works and to help encourage policymakers to avoid strategies that don't. Absolutely. And that, that those are a lot of really interesting examples that you offered up there. The I wonder about the question of raising public awareness. Is that something that also plays a role in sort of creating sustainability around some of these ideas and solutions? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think the the challenge right now is that Bolsonaro and, and others like him uh, have a very seductive message. It's simple to, to understand. Uh, it's often based on sort of notions of morals and family values, uh, and it mobilizes fear. And this is a tough combination. He's, he's tapping a nerve right now in uh, you know, a, a country and in a region where people are feeling uh, quite concerned, where there's a high levels of emasculation, where young men are feeling they don't have many opportunities. So we need to find ways, I think, not just EGAP Institute, but many of the think tanks and research organizations like us that work on issues of public security, justice, and human rights, uh, to mobilize evidence, but also tell it stories in a way that make it immediate and accessible. Um, and that means we need to document experiences that are out there. We can't just be relying on what's been happening in North America or Western Europe and try to you know, mobilize people locally. And the good news is there's a lot going on and there are more and more actors who are documenting and researching and evaluating these activities. Um, but it also means being quite creative with our communications. Uh, and that means not just mobilizing the media, um, which we do a lot of, whether it's Global or Folia in Brazil or New York Times and Washington Post internationally, uh, but also getting much savvier around using social media. Um, social media was a decisive feature in this last election. Uh, and Brazil has one of the largest, I think it's the second largest Facebook community in the world after India, oh, third largest after India and the United States, uh, and one of the largest WhatsApp communities. So we have to get much more clever about how do you transmit that information but what we're also using increasingly is music, as in, you know, media, music stars. Uh, we're using soap opera uh, to communicate, you know, stories through uh, soap opera. Uh, and so we, I think, have to understand that as a community, it's not enough to write a paper, uh, to do a press release, to get something out into the media and to hold a seminar. You've got to get, you've got to get this stuff translated into terms that people understand uh, and that touches them emotionally. Um, and so, for example, right now, as we think about Bolsonaro and we think about the way that this has riled up a, a very strong base, predominantly of men, um, white men and middle-class men uh, who've, who really strongly support the message, we need to start empowering women um, and women with children to start engaging with these kinds of messages. We need to start empowering police who really don't want to see more guns in the street um, and get them to become agents and champions of change. We need to be engaging with musicians and artists from across the spectrum. Um, and we are doing this, by the way. Uh, but I think we're going to have to get much more savvy and we're going to have to learn how to scale it rapidly because uh, it's not enough just to, to, to proceed with business as usual. Um, we have to start getting clever. And it sounds like it's a challenge not just for Brazil, but for the international community as a whole. I think so. I mean, you know, uh, there is this global turbulence right now that we're seeing. Uh, the global liberal institutions are being shaken, you know, across the spectrum, whether it's uh, our, our United Nations and our multilateral frameworks, whether it's our uh, military uh, cooperative security arrangements like NATO, or, or whether it's the WTO and other training arrangements. And, and we're seeing country after country right now um, seeing the fringe come to the center and the centers collapse. Uh, and we're seeing this narrative uh, of exclusion, of closing borders, of restricting migration. Um, of, of cracking down on security, of, uh, you know, and, and often these populist strongmen emerging 
uh, and, and grabbing these middle grounds. So I think, you know, as a community, we have to start getting smarter about how do we rally the, the large proportion of the population that, you know, are not necessarily supporting these groups, but holding their nose because they don't see the traditional politicians offering them options. Uh, and I think that means getting smarter about how we think about engaging communications. It means getting obviously smarter about dealing with digital, uh, you know, and, and uh, media manipulation um, and calling out fake news where we can. Uh, but we need to get clever about how we communicate these messages. And, you know, I, I'm really confident that there is a generation of young people who are uh, going to be able to help mobilize. But but it is true that we are going through a very turbulent moment uh, and it's difficult to respond in real time to what is probably the single most dramatic shift in our politics since the end of the Cold War. Sure. And it, it sounds like the, the upcoming generation might be a source of, of optimism moving forward. I hope so. I, I hope so. I mean, on the one hand, yes. On the one hand, I, I am anxious because here in Brazil, you know, there has been this declining faith in democracy, as I mentioned, over the last you know, 10 years, according to LAPOP surveys. This is a, a group out of Vanderbilt University that tracks sentiment. Um, but you can also see this declining faith in democracy in Gallup polls and other um, national polls and surveys that have been done. Uh, and what, what's particularly alarming about this shift, and it's not just here in Brazil, we're seeing this kind of shift and declining support in democracy across large swaths of Latin America and and of course, I don't need to tell you, but in North America and Western Europe and elsewhere. Uh, but what's disconcerting in this part of the world is that it's young people who are also seeing less faith in democracy as being the primary form uh, of governance um, that they they wish to be living under, and a growing uh, seduction, if I can put it that way, of uh, authoritarianism as as a possible response to issues of crime and corruption. And there is a kind of amnesia. Uh, amongst this young population, certainly here in Brazil, who don't seem, <laughs> certainly didn't live through the dictatorship and, and don't seem to have been learned the lessons. Uh, and, and in some ways are even welcoming some of the diatribe of Bolsonaro around bringing back the dictatorship and uh, finishing the job, as he said, that wasn't completed, um, which basically is code for uh, wiping out the opposition and, you know, going after minority groups. So I, I, on the one hand, while I see this millennial and the, the next generations being savvy and engaged and wanting to make a difference, I do hope that we can uh, ensure that this generation, the, the next one, um, are also taking the right lessons of history uh, and you know, responding accordingly. Some important trends to keep an eye on moving forward, both, both mm. positive and negative then. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, thank you very much, Robert. Uh, I know that this is a, a busy and, and very uh, important time in, in Brazil's history. I just have one last question for you. Uh, now that the election is over, you know, what's next for, for you and the Institute moving forward? Well, you know, I think on the one hand, um, we need to sort of take stock ourselves of, of this dramatic transformation. Uh, and and have a think about how we engage. I mean, at Gagape Institute, our strategy has always been uh, to provide a kind of broker role between the state and civil society and, and private actors and technology companies, and to try to identify not just the challenges and critique governments when they when they make you know when when they go off in the wrong direction, but also to help identify solutions and concrete strategies uh, to shape public policy and, and programming on the ground. Uh, 
what we had in the past were you know biz partners with which we could do business uh it's not necessarily clear that we have the same level of quality uh of partners at the moment uh, you know bolsonaro is yet to name his cabinet um you know we're seeing some names emerge and we know some are familiar some are absolutely unfamiliar uh but at the federal and at the state level uh there's still a lot that needs to be sifted out before this new administration's take power in January. So I think from our perspective, Yagape, we, we want to sit back and understand a little bit more what's happened. Um, we want to understand how those challenges and opportunities are going to emerge. We certainly want to be helping build our networks in civil society, many of whom feel deeply nervous and anxious, uh, and giving them our support and solidarity, uh, especially the ones on the front line, the human rights groups who are really uh, going to be facing the ire and already facing the ire of, of both, you know, Bolsonaro and many of the parties and, and supporters. Um, we'll be expanding our regional footprint. We already have presence in Colombia and Mexico and South Africa and New York and, and in London. And I think at Iagape we'll be continuing to expand our work, uh, looking for opportunities to increase South-South cooperation uh, and strengthen our partnerships. Uh, we've got a number of really exciting projects on, on, the, on the horizon. I mean, as you know, we work on citizen security, drug policy, digital freedom, cities and, and peace and security. And, and on the tech front, um, we're, we're really excited about some of the work we're doing, including some new projects with Uber, looking at sexual violence um, and developing platforms to monitor and track sexual violence. Uh, we're doing some really interesting work on crime prediction uh, and looking at the ethics of, of predicting crime and, and how do we make um, these kinds of new machine learning and AI tools more ethical and how do we make the algorithms that drive them more transparent. Uh, we're developing crime observatories uh, with, with smaller municipalities, looking at ways of scaling it with our partners uh, at the IEDB and the bank and elsewhere. Um, we've got a really fun and interesting projects with Carnegie Mellon's Institute, which, which does um, sort of very large big data visual mapping uh, to track trends in climate change and, um, and, and, and social and economic issues. And we're doing some really, I think, interesting work on prison reform now. Uh, you know, Brazil has the third largest prison population on the planet. Um, and we're working with a lot of groups to try to think about rehabilitation options for inmates to reduce uh, both prison populations but also recidivism. Uh, and I'm personally working with something called the Global Parliament of Mayors, which is a wonderful group of, of city leaders, over 100 mayors, that are looking to drive global governance from the bottom up um, around the world at a time when our nation states are really, really paralyzed and our international institutions are struggling to, to deal with global governance issues. So, you know, I, I, we have a really uncertain, turbulent, and, and quite... Um, worrying scenario ahead but i'm also really excited by the work you know my team's doing uh, and our partners are involved in so despite it all <laughs> a lot of work <laughs> ahead then we'll uh we'll have to have you back on at some point to discuss all these other projects that that you guys have underway great i would love to thanks a million joel well thanks so much for joining us and uh and, and good luck with everything moving forward will do take care